Thanks, Dave. <laughs> That's too fun. Oh, Roxanne, isn't that fun? Merry Christmas, my goodness. Best Christmas presents ever. I got to tell you, it's super exciting what God's doing. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, everybody has a story, right? Each of you have your, your own story on what Christ has done to you and for you and how he's transformed you and brought you into his kingdom. And we are continuing on. Last week began our Advent, our Christmas uh, celebration. So we'll do that all through December um, to point to why that's even possible. And that's the point today. Um, talking about the cast of Christmas, the players of uh, Christmas this morning is about the prophets, about the preparation and expectation of the coming king. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus and all the world should be registered. And all the world means the Roman world, not the entire world, okay? So just for clarification purposes. Um, Verse 4, Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in clothes laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And the shepherds uh, in the same region were out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Glory to the Lord shone around him. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising the Lord, saying, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth among those whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we're here to worship, we're here to remember, we're here to give you glory and honor by doing something so simple, something that you've asked us to do, to gather together on a regular basis to remember you. And Father, this time of year, just so special because we get to remember and celebrate what this birth means and what it led to. And Father, just thank you for all those people that you have used throughout history regular, normal, everyday people, some not so regular and everyday, but all sinners, all to point to the man Jesus Christ. So, Father, thank you for the gift that we can remember this year. In Jesus' name, amen. You have 12 days left until Christmas. Did you know that? Does that put any concern in your life? (laughs) Not me either. I let my wife do all that. (laughs) Twelve days. How do you prepare for Christmas? What do you do? According to the Washington Post, the United States Postal Service is going to ship 75 or 750 million packages annually around the country. 
Christmas more than any other time, you can feel the building of expectations, can't you? Or do you? I find that the older I get, maybe a little bit more difficult because the kids aren't home, right? But I get to see that through the grandkids. The joy and the expectation of what they perceive as coming and the joy that it brings. What kind of preparation are you doing? That's the gist of today. The preparation. The preparation and expectation of Christmas. And to be honest, I think you can say that most of life is truly all about that, don't you think? Most of life is this preparation and expectation long before the actual moment you're preparing for and expecting comes, right? That, that actual moment lasts just this brief time. So consider maybe that. In other words, you can't stay on vacation forever, right? Well, maybe some of you can because you're retired. I don't know. <laughs> but that honestly had bored me to death. I can only sit on a beach for so long, like five minutes. <laughs> It, but you do all this preparation and planning, right? The expectation of this event in my life, vacation, Christmas, tomorrow morning when you go to work, whatever it is for you, most of life is about all this preparation that takes place, building up to this narrow event in your moment in life and history, doesn't it? Because it doesn't last forever. And then when that's done, you get this wonderful maybe feeling and emotion because you took a good vacation or whatever it is or you've just had a new baby right nine months of preparation whatever it may be and then it's over and then what are you looking for what are you doing next let me ask you something can you just enjoy the moments have you learned to do that just to enjoy the moment you're in I struggle with that personally because it's always keep moving. It's always, you know, if that's the target, the only way to get to the target, if there's a pedal in the car, is you just push the pedal all the way down <laughs> and there's no brakes. But I can only do that for so long and then my wife will remind me, I'll just hit the wall and kind of crash and burn and, you know, we'll have a conversation. But there's all this preparation that takes place the whole Old Testament and the prophets and what we are celebrating in a few weeks led up to this one singular moment in history. It was roughly 4,000 years from Adam until Jesus. It was 1,600 years between Moses and Jesus. And Moses says, hey, after he brings them out of Egypt, there is one that's going to come after me. He's going to look like me, talk like me, act like me. He's going to be better, but watch for him. That took 1,600 years of preparation and anticipation. It took 400 years for God to decide to draw his people out and call them out of Egypt. Can you imagine that? I get frustrated with washing machines and dryers that don't work all the time because I'm not mechanical. You know, just grab a hammer and it'll work. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the preparation that, that takes place for those things. And to think how frustrated I get when they don't happen. And yet when you see the Lord work, He has all time and eternity. And you and I are in the midst of that preparation. Initially, the expect 
expectation of the Messiah is revealed in Genesis chapter 3. That's the first time we see this expectation and preparation revealed to you and I. And it says this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was God's response to Satan. This prophecy of something is going to happen when I'm ready in the future, this is going to take place. The reason, because sin destroys everything it touches. It twists everything. Every good thing even, a good thing taken too far or to an extreme becomes something other than what it was meant to be. The whole moment in history of the Old Testament is preparing and pointing to the Savior that would enter the world to take away the curse of sin. How are you preparing? Can you imagine that? Could you imagine hearing Moses say, there's going to be one who's going to do this. Here is the law. He's going to fulfill it. He's going to take all of sin away, and it's going to take 1,600 years. Now, of course, they didn't know that. And I have just, you know, hard enough time with those little things in life that don't seem to work all the time. I can't imagine generation after generation after generation waiting and preparing When is this going to take place? When is this going to happen? Why is it taking so long? The law was given to God by Moses. All the temple sacrifices were meant for this preparation process. They were not the end of themselves, as the Jews kind of embodied over the years, but I can understand why. It was to point to a Savior. It was more to point to their need for a Savior. The picture of slavery and sorrows the Israels were in in Egypt. The bondage of sin you face until you come to the recognition and a need for a Savior. A recognition that there is something and someone who can save. 700 years before Jesus' birth, Micah, the prophet, inspired by the Spirit of God, looking to that day, said this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephraim, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and ancient times. There was all this preparation taking place. All this expectation of this one moment in time in history that Jesus would come. And he did. Unlike the nations around in that day, so too in our culture, the godless, the godless nations will mock. They will reject the knowledge of His coming. They will reject any notion that there is a God. They are willingly, woefully avoiding looking for the Savior because it means something when you do. It means that you don't have all the answers, that you don't have all the solutions, that you can't fix all the world's problems. It's too big for you. But we try, don't we? It's been a couple weeks, and maybe for most of us, it drifts out of our mind. But what do you tell 
students who have to go back to school after a shooting in Oxford. What do you tell people as a tornado rips through their town in Kentucky and so many die? What do you tell them? What hope are you offering if it's not a coming king? What are the other options? What do you have? I just want to share this. So Jackie and I and you know a dozen or more of you, they had a vigil in the pier after the Oxford shooting. And it was good to see the, the old courthouse, the whole you know grounds were covered with people and and so um, a wonderful young lady got up and spoke, and it was really hard because there was no speaker, no sound, so I couldn't hear very well. And then a minister got up and prayed and then dismissed everybody. And about half of that crowd stayed around, mingling, a lot of students. And there were three other um, well-intended ladies um, walking around, wanting to sing, wanting to do something maybe more. And what was interesting to me is what they wanted to sing. Now, in my naivete, I heard the word imagine, so I'm thinking, oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> Silly me. That's not what they wanted to sing. It was John Lennon's Imagined. Now, I'm thankful this group, most of you already know that song. I'll have to explain it to next service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was taken aback by that. What's the first word in the song? Imagine. Really? We're going to pretend? Is that what we're offering students? We're going to imagine? Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. Really? We're going to pretend that there is no God. I mean, that's the gist of the song. And then he goes on about, you know, imagine there's no religion, which the whole song is about a religion. That's the irony. But what are you offering? What are you offering when things of that magnitude happen in someone's life. Just imagine. Pretend it doesn't exist. Pretend it's going to be all better somehow, some way. We don't know how. But just imagine. I don't think so. There's no hope in that. There's no hope in any of that. But you could just imagine somehow it's going to get better. And so we look to governing officials or people in power or whatever to fix it. And that was the gist of after that. And it, again, I couldn't hear very well, but it kind of turned into a political speech, I think. Always looking for someone to fix it. Someone do something. Get rid of the guns. Get rid of this. Get rid of that. The Surgeon General issued a report this week. It was rather interesting to me. Again, here is a government source trying to fix things. It was a reference to young people's mental health. One out of three boys and half of the girls, and this is a reference to 2019, are and how they're determining sad or hopeless, I don't know. But that's a 40% increase from 2009. And they'll go on and describe in that report the causes and the ramifications. Oh, it's social media, it's drug use, it's family, it's all these things. They're not safe. And yet all you can tell them is just to imagine. 
what hope do you offer? What are you willing to share this Christmas? How are you willing to prepare? Let me ask you something. We are now in the same row on the other side of the cross, just like the Israelites coming out of Egypt, waiting patiently, generation after generation after generation. Is Christ coming again or is he not? It's been so long. That's what Peter talks about. Where is his coming? Everything has been going on since time immemorial, just like it always has been. And it's so easy to get lulled to sleep, not being prepared. Are you prepared? I'd like to share four principles so you have the peace of Christ, so you can truly have joy to the world, peace on earth among men, because Christ has come. The first one is preparation of repentance. John the Baptist was the last great prophet who had come to Jesus just before him. They overlapped. They lived in the same time. His whole ministry was a ministry of preparation for the king that was coming. So that when the king came, when Jesus revealed himself in his ministry, in essence the Jewish nation would be ready, would be responsive. He was a herald, in other words. That was his ministry. It's a hard ministry. It's a hard ministry to call people to something that they don't naturally aspire to or want to do. Repent. John's preparation is specific. The readiness to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same as it was then as it is now, by the way. Luke 3, he says, John went around to all the regions of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He's calling these people for a specific reason. The king is coming, repent. Repent and be baptized. Luke goes on to explain in the book of Acts that this Savior, or John does in in that same chapter, that when he comes, Jesus is going to do his own baptizing, baptizing of the Holy Spirit. And you see that happen in Acts chapter 2 when the church began. And then you see Peter do something rather interesting in Acts, I believe. He combines both of them. He gives his first sermon to his Jewish brothers and sisters that day. And they stop and pause and interrupt. And what shall we do to be saved? And he combines them both. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if, ne- if you've never accepted him, I don't even like to use the word receive because that kind of puts to me you in the driver's seat. You don't receive the king. He receives you. It's less about what you think about Jesus Christ and what he thinks about you. Are you prepared? If you don't know him, you are not. You need to repent. The key to the preparation, what does that mean? What does repentance mean? Well, in the Greek, metanao, that's the Greek word, it means the changing of one's way of life. If you don't like the word repentance, I'll use a different word to regard to that. Defection. Maybe you, un- maybe you can relate to that more. You're in one nation, 
and you don't like that particular nation, or you see it's oppressive, or you see whatever, and you defect to another one. It's the same term. When Josephus, before uh, Jerusalem is completely leveled by Rome, he defects. He's a general. The historian Josephus says he's a general in the Jewish army. He defects to Rome. They send him to the wall, and he pleads with his own people before it's destroyed. In essence, defect, repent. It's the same word that he uses. He was mocked, and in part because his family, some of them, were still in Jerusalem. And so they said, the only reason you're asking us to do this is because your family's still inside the wall. You have to defect. It's the picture you get when Jesus has the conversation with Nicodemus. You must be born again. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, blows where it goes. It calls whom it calls. John chapter 3. 1 Kings 8 says this. This is how far back this goes. 40, verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, you are angry with them and give them to your enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Yet if they turn with their heart to the land which they have been carried captive, repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, we have sinned, we have acted perversely, we have acted wickedly. If they repent with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and pray toward the land which you gave to your fathers, the city that you have chosen, the house that I have built in your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you to grant them compassion in the sight of those. Are you prepared? See, despite all the prophecies describing the first coming of Jesus, the Messiah, his life, his death, most missed it. They didn't see their sin. They didn't see their need for repentance. They saw their salvation and all the regulations of avoiding all of those things, of all the sacrifices. That's how we maintain our salvation. We've got to keep all the dues. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't repented, if you haven't been immersed into Christ. In other words, it's faith that saves. If that's not you, repent. Please. Save yourself, Jesus said, from this wicked generation. Number two is this. Preparation intensity of the expectation of His coming. Have you ever noticed uh, when you're preparing for something, the intensity of that, the closer it gets, elevates? like a high school sport, basketball, for instance. There's only so much practicing you can do until you want to have the first game, right? Otherwise, you just kind of drift off. It's boring. You want to be able to compete, so that intensity starts to build. At some point, you have to compete. At some point, you have to be driven to do so. All that time, energy, and effort and practice motivates you so you can have that one moment. You prepare for, for weeks with practice before the first game. All that energy, all the sprints, all that stuff. I mean, pick anything. Music's the same way. Pick anything in life. Have you ever considered how you would prepare for work? 
if you expected Jesus to be present with you tomorrow, how you would prepare for coming on a Sunday morning just to be with Jesus when you arrived? How would you spend your time, energy, effort getting ready if you expected and you knew the Holy Spirit would impact you each and every time? When your worship was done in spirit and in truth, if you knew these were the last days, if you truly believed that, that great and terrible day of the Lord that's coming as he defines it, would you do things differently? If we had such expectations, would it affect our preparations with our lives each day? If you are in Christ, as a believer in Christ, he will most assuredly be with you in your workplace tomorrow. He will be with you at school. He will be with you where you live, work, and play. That's his promise, if you remember. I will never leave you or forsake you. That knowledge alone should change my life and my intensity. Yours as well. Number three. Preparation, therefore, bears fruit. It has to show up some way in my life. This one should be rather obvious, I think. If you've repented, if you defected from the world's team to, to Jesus, you've been traded to a new team. When that happens, to use a sports analogy, you don't get to keep your old uniform, right? <laughs> I mean, Matthew Stafford's not running around with the Lions uniform. He's playing for the Rams now. That would be rather odd, sad, but at least he's winning. <laughs> you don't get to keep the plays. You don't get to keep all the stuff you kept from one team and poured it over to the next team because that's what you know. All that stuff gets thrown away. You have new coaches, a new playbook, a new everything. So it bears fruit. The test of repentance is not whether... You're good enough, or those things that show up in your life. Oh, look at me. Look how good I am. That's not the point of the fruit in your life. All the fruit does in your life is supposed to point back to the one who's giving it to you, the author and finisher of your faith. Matthew 3 8 reminds us of that to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Listen, Jesus, if you're in Christ, please understand this. Jesus is already proud of you. He already, you understand, understand that? The doing in my life, the transformation in my life has, has virtually nothing about that. It's just the no notion that I'm on a new team. He's already proud of me. He's already my father and he already loves me. I don't do those things to make him happy. He's already happy. Do you see the difference? I don't want to disappoint him now. Now I do because I'm still sinful and I still have to come to him to repent and ask for forgiveness. But I don't want that in my life. I want to please him. I want to, I want to make the shot. I want to make the lab. Whatever analogy you want to use, he's already proud of you because you're in Christ. Christ has done all the work for you. He's already saved you. Relax. Enjoy the ride. <laughs> Bear fruit. If someone sins against you, apologizes, keeps repeating that same process, have they really repented? 
Don't get that confused with forgiveness. I understand Jesus said 70 times 7, but we're not talking about forgiveness. We're talking about a penitent heart. Sometimes that process takes time until it's complete. But know this, if you are not putting sin in your rear view mirror, if you're still willing to to play around with it, to allow it around the edges of your life, you truly haven't repented. It's not about you feeling bad. It's not about you apologizing. It's, It's not, you know, I got caught. It's not any of that. It's about whether or not you hate your sin. The recognition that Jesus died for it. It's the recognition, do you understand in the Sermon on the Mount, that you are poor in spirit, that you are completely bankrupt. See, we come to that place where sin and the ugliness of it in our lives the pain becomes so great that you can't stay there because of what Christ has done for you? Can you say, Lord, whatever, I'll do whatever it takes, but I can't do it alone? This isn't either about you pulling yourself up by the bootstraps to get you there, because you can't. That's the point. Only He can help you get there. So help me in my weakness. Show me where I can go to get free of this. First Corinthians 10 says this, He will not let you be tempted beyond what your ability, but when you're tempted, He will also provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. What's the it? The it is the temptation. You don't have to give in to it. Are you ready? Are you ready for Christ's arrival? Just ask this question in your own heart. Is my life bearing fruit? Again, it's not a test of whether you're saved or not. That's not it. It's the results of you being saved. Fruit happens because you're in Christ. You can't get those turned around. Do you see your life when you started as a baby Christian? You see increased service, a closer, deeper relationship. Do you see that ebb and flow? Because it does. It's not, you know, all straight uphill and, man, me and Jesus... That's life, isn't it? Do you see victory over sin? Healthy, stronger family life? Greater peace and joy in your own life? A deeper love for the lost? See, the longer you're walking with the Lord, the more you should see your life grow. And in that process, He will prune those unfruitful vines out of your life. John 15 says that. Christmas is coming. The second advent is coming. Those that bear fruit receive a reward, Matthew 25 says. And I like rewards. Do you? (laughs) They're just fun. (laughs) Number four, preparation of waiting for your rescue. The promise of the prophets before Christ came is what they held on to, that they knew there was a rescue coming. 1,600 years of waiting to see it. 
Jesus makes reference of that. Hey, they all wanted to see this day, but they don't get to see it. Abraham wanted to see this moment. All this preparation, all this expectation, they were looking forward. That's how the Scripture describes it. They wanted to see these three years of life. They didn't get to see any of that, but they knew it was coming. They anticipated it coming. Waiting is hard, isn't it? It's so important that we remember that what we're doing in this life, your life, is preparation. It's just that. It's preparation. This life is not it. This is not the end all. This is not the salvation or what makes one righteous. It's not that you're going to be rescued. It's not your get-out-of-jail-free card. All your Christian living, in other words, all this Christian preparation is nothing more than your response to what Jesus has done for you at the cross. The reason he came into this world, his work at the cross and his promise of the resurrection is for you. It's the natural saving response to what he's already done. John 14 says this, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare that place, I will come again and take you to be to myself. Because where I am, I want you to be. Have you ever been lost before? in need of rescuing. My aunt and uncle had an A-frame cabin up north years ago. I don't even remember what, like, I was probably eight. And it was like a reunion. Of course, I didn't, it was just my dad's, my aunts and uncles, his brothers and sisters, all the cousins. I mean, there's this big deal, right? And all the big kids, because the babies of the family like me get shafted, went out swimming, well, I'm not a very good swimmer at eight. So I had to stay, much to my frustration, because everybody else is out there on the float, diving, throwing each other off, splashing, carrying on. Wonderful summer day. But I have to stay up by the parents in the shallow end. <laughs> so I'm bouncing around, playing, and slowly just getting deeper, not paying attention by the dock. And, and all of a sudden, I hit the drop-off. When I hit that drop-off, I went completely under. Fortunately, I was bouncing. So I went right down and able, was able to push myself back up again. <laughs> and as I did, I spun around and saw my parents and all my aunts and uncles, everybody sitting at the picnic table right on the edge of the beach. And then I went down again. And then I had enough energy to push myself back up again. And I remember them at that time now they're hitting the water and all the splashing and carrying on again. And then I went down a third time. But this time, there was no push left. And it wasn't until, I didn't know, but my dad reached down to grab me to pull me out. Have you ever been in need of rescue? I got to tell you, that's an awful feeling to go underwater. <laughs> I truly hope we understand the nature 
of what Christ has done in our rescue and utter hopelessness. No more push in our life to try to reach the surface. No imagining that somehow it's going to get better some way and somebody's going to reach down in our life to fix it for us and make it all better, make it all go away. That's what the world is offering. In the midst of all the joyful celebration we experience, the nativities, the carol singing, and all those things, we have to remember Christmas is a rescue mission. Jesus stepping off his throne, reaching down to people who are drowning in their own sin with no more push, no possible way to reach the surface. Emmanuel, God with us, in the midst of the rescuing comes the waiting. What you and I have been called to do, to live, to be, he is the only one that has the power to rescue. He has a plan in mind. He has a means in mind. You and I don't know when. You and I don't know really how. We can read some of that in Scripture. But this Advent season, my encouragement is to not expect or prepare for the stress or being overwhelmed or all the fear that's been promulgated and continues to do so in our society. But let us wait expectantly for the Lord to show himself strong, just like he did in Israel in our lifetime. The land of Goshen was blessed. Everything else, the world was just spinning out of control, and it does so still today. To wait expectantly for his power to be revealed in your and my weakness. To wait expectantly with a certain understanding of the knowledge that he is preparing our hearts for all eternity, chiseling away at the hardness of our sin that so easily entangles. To wait expectantly for his hand to guide you through life, to guide you, your family, to guide this church. To wait expectantly to see the kingdom advance here and now, in spite of everything that's taking place, to not back up and back into a corner, but be advancing in the kingdom of God, in spite of what our eyes see in this culture. To wait expectantly for those who don't know the name of Jesus to be found. To wait expectantly for his love to throw through you and me the means of speaking the gospel, speaking the truth in love to a world that is drowning in its own sin. And yes, ultimately to wait for Jesus' physical return in a small, narrow moment in history that most of us will probably never see There will only be one generation that's going to see that when it actually happens. For unto you a child has been born. For unto you a child has been given. Emmanuel, God with us, he has come. In Christ, you have been rescued. His rescue is complete. And our best response is, in this life, is to repent, to defect, 
to receive his gift and then to prepare your life with great expectation in the living of the life that he has given you for however many days he has decided to give you. But you can know your rescue is secure and that he is bringing his reward with him to those who are faithful. Father, thank you for your gift 